Welcome to All Fired Up. I'm Louise, your host, and this is the podcast where we talk all things anti-diet. Has diet culture got you in a fit of rage? Is the injustice of the beauty ideal getting your knickers in a twist? Does Fitspo make you want to spitspo? Are you ready to hurl if you hear one more weight loss tip? Are you ready to be mad, loud and proud? Well, you've come to the right place. Let's get all fired up. And we're back. Welcome to another episode of All Fired Up, the podcast where we get the shits with diet culture and are not afraid to say it. So first of all, I want to say a huge thank you to everybody because just for listening and giving me feedback because this year I've noticed there's been more and more people listening to each episode, which really excites me. Because as you know, my mission in life is to topple diet culture and to get people thinking critically. And when I see that more and more people are listening to an episode and more people are emailing me and expressing outrage and sharing their stories, it's just really affirming because this is the point of the All Fired Up podcast. It's literally to get people fired up and thinking critically. So thank you. And remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss them as they pop out every two weeks. And if you're feeling particularly generous and wanting to contribute to getting all fired up, heard by more and more people, go to somewhere like Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a really nice review or just give us the five stars because, frankly, I think that's what matters. And tell your friends and family. Tell people what you're listening to so we can share in this message of outrage and longing for justice and longing for change. And if you're interested in finding out more about the weight science and and the kind of underpinning of this whole anti-diet approach and why I'm so convinced that what we've been doing just isn't working, there's a free ebook which I've co-written with the fantastic dietitian Fiona Willer and it's called Everything You've Been Told About Weight Loss is Bullshit and you can get it at untrapped.com.au and it should just pop up and you can download. It is busting the top 10 myths that are floating around diet culture about weight and health and it really challenges the status quo but there is a whole pile of resources and scientific articles and meta-analyses and we're digging under the sound bites that we hear in the news and in magazines about weight and health and showing you the really interesting picture of what health looks like when we put aside weight stigma and weight-centric views. So it's an awesome resource. It's really good to share with friends and family who are wondering what on earth you're doing and also good to give to health professionals like GPs or specialists like endocrinologists. All kinds of health professionals will be interested in reading this kind of material. So go and grab a copy and give it out. Put it in Christmas stockings. Just get it out there. So we are entering end of the year mode and, oh, my God, has a diet culture bullshit just entered full throttle mode like it's always bad but at this time of year it just cranks up to ridiculous and you can't look anywhere without messages like these conflicting messages on the one hand oh it's Christmas there's all this food let's go and eat all this food oh getting ready for January when you just can't eat any food guilty naughty oh my god it is so incredibly boring So please, everybody, look after yourselves at this time of year and protect as much as possible your social media feeds, your conversation, you know, turn turn stuff off that is triggering you. Don't read intrusive emails from diet-obsessed dieticians or celebrities who are sucking on lollipops and telling you it's really good not to eat on anything. (laughs) Connect with your communities stay strong with the non-diet approach because, you know, this is the one that resonates and diet culture can get pretty seductive. So you might remember a year ago we did the inaugural Crappy Awards where I invited listeners to send me an audio rant about an aspect of diet culture that's really pissed them off during 2017 last year. And it was really awesome because I got some fantastic tirades from all sorts of different people. So I am bringing it back. I think a nice way to celebrate the insanity of diet culture at this time of year is, is to practice ranting about it. So I am introducing the second annual Crappy Awards from the All Pied Up podcast. 
So the point of this is I'm inviting you guys, the listeners, to send me a short audio grab where you can just rant and rave about an aspect of diet culture that's really pissed you off. It might be a ridiculous diet you've heard this year in 2018. It might be a really stupid initiative that's happening at your kid's school or in your workplace. It could be something happening on social media or the TV or literally anything that is pissing you off about diet culture. I want to hear about it and I want to share your rant with all of the listeners here at All Fired Up. So, If you can think of something and you want to get it off your chest, do a quick recording, send it to me at louise at untrapped.com.au and if you're successful, you'll hear your tirade played on the crappy episode of All Fight Up, which will happen in January. And there's it's a competition, so there's going to be a winner. So the person who delivers the best tirade or perhaps the person who really reveals some, some completely shit element of diet culture in a beautiful way will receive a prize and of course I'm not going to reveal what it is but it's a pretty special prize so get your rant on send me a little tirade and I'd love to hear from you so you guys are not going to believe how awesome today's episode of all fired up is I have Deb Burgard talking to me today and this is such an honor because Deb is literally someone who has been around since the formation of the Health at Every Size movement. She was part of the the whole sort of social justice roots of this incredible change that the world really needs. Deb is a psychologist and she's from America and she's an eating disorders specialist as well. She's so active in the Hayes community and she's just so incredibly well respected. So I'm very blessed and impressed that she's come along to chat to us today about yo-yo dieting. And it's a really cool, incredible conversation. So without further ado, I'm introducing you to me and Deb. So Deb, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. (laughs) So tell me, what is firing you up at the moment? I'm fired up about the diet industry trying to rescue weight cycling as their business model with these mouse studies. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is a brilliant thing to get the shits about. Um, (laughs) And I love the way you put that you just call out weight cycling industry, you know, because that's really what it is, isn't it? Like weight science shows that most people will experience yo-yo dieting, I guess, where you go on a diet, you lose a bit of weight, then the weight comes straight back and then you start another diet. And so that's, that's most people's experiences. Yes, it's most people's experience and it is the business model because after all, if you had a product or a service that worked in terms of changing people's weights permanently, they would no longer be customers for your industry. Like you have to have something that doesn't work so Mm -hmm. people come back and sign up again. And the weird thing about that that's different from other industries is you also have to have people imagining that it's their fault and that they should try again and you know it's not the process itself right right no it's not the product it's it's Mm -hmm. not that the stuff that we're doing they're buying that we're buying doesn't work it's something Mm -hmm. that we're doing wrong it's like one of probably one of the biggest you know gaslighting industries (laughs) in the world (laughs) (laughs) wow that's true (laughs) How to convince, like, I always use the analogy of a car. Like, if this was, if dieting was a car and, like, the brakes failed, Mm -hmm. it would be, like, the the car company blaming people for their driving skills. (laughs) Right. And And the drivers drivers blaming themselves, too, you know. Yeah, like, agreeing with them and not suing the company. And that's kind of where we're at at the moment. Yeah. Because how, how, I mean, how strong do you reckon the evidence is that weight loss dieting doesn't work? Well, you know, Fiona Willer has that wonderful slide from her work, you know, called Unpacking Weight Science. And yeah. it's, that, it's that page from the, gosh, actually, yeah. I don't know the, the Australian name. Yeah, it's that. The, um, the National Health and Medical Research Council. 
So yes. one, of, one of our really, you know, big national centres that, that sort of collates research in health and medicine. Yes. Together they evaluate, right, evaluating the evidence for different different things and, you know, what should we do with this medical problem and what should, you know, what what's the evidence for these different treatments and, yeah, so there's, they have that one page that's this is so great, which basically says, you know, the evidence for the assertion that people regain weight when they try to lose weight intentionally is, you know, given a grade A in terms of the strength and the consistency of the evidence. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very, very clear that yeah. that is what happens. And it's also clear that that's what happens you know, not just with humans, it happens with, you know, with lab animals, it happens with wild animals, it ha- you know, it's happening, it happens with mammals, it just, I find it so interesting that it's hard for us to really conceptualize weight regain as mm, our body's, not- he- as our body's healing, yeah. you know, like this is really, this is hardwired, and it's about going back to normal it's not about failing it's about going back to the homeostatic state that your body is trying to maintain and the failure of imagination is that we can't imagine that that animals and humans are supposed to come in these different sizes and they're going to have their weight their their weights are all regulating they're just regulating around different places like we Mm. think everybody's supposed to be the same size and you have to explain it if somebody's much thinner or much fatter, but in fact, you know, of course, there are processes that displace people's weights up and down. But you know, the the sort of dominant thing that we're seeing is is diversity here. You know, yeah. So we're all different, and also if we try and shrink our bodies, then our bodies will fight back and get back to where it feels comfortable, and that's across species. That's Mm-hmm. So robust, but, right? And, yeah. then, and when and when you see people who are suppressing their weight and suppressing their weight and sort of continuing to suppress their weight, you know that is something also that is a pathology. It's not an achievement, and mm-hmm. we recognize it as a pathology when it occurs in a thinner person because we call it weight suppression and we call it you know restrictive mm-hmm. eating disorder or you know whatever the symptoms are mm. but when a person's starting from a higher weight it's completely opaque to most people that there's a pathological process in inherent there as yeah. well so you know for so higher weight people who have the exact same disease as people who start off at a an average weight you know who are who are doing exactly the same thing whose bodies are exactly as weight suppressed will not get the diagnosis for anorexia, for example. No, no, because of all of the weight bias that exists in our diagnostic criterias. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so something that is, I guess, seen as unhealthy or an illness in a lower weight person is seen as success in, in a higher weight person, which is so screwed up. Yes, we, I say this all the time. We prescribe for fat people what we diagnose as eating disordered in thin people. <laughs> oh, I love that you said that. <laughs> That's one of my all-time favorite quotes from you. <laughs> and I've seen it presented at various conferences and people squirming in their seats and feeling quite uucomfortable with that because I guess that's sort of what you're known for is calling out the dominant paradigm and and like by saying stuff like this you know it's a weight cycling industry or that really we can't say that success is prescribing an eating disorder like you're not afraid to put forward your viewpoint and challenge the paradigm which is so cool well I hope I'm not afraid um (laughs) you know 30 years of sitting across people suffering because of all of this stuff you know it kind of you know it's more important to you know make us look at it it's you know I'm one of the few people who gets to see these parts of the picture that I think a lot of a lot of people just don't notice or don't see don't have access to so I see all these 
you know, very dynamic, very lovable, engaged, wonderful, awesome people at higher weights who are sort of, you know, really having these lives that are, you know, like well worth living, you mm-hmm. know, and whether they're how, however healthy they are, however, you know, whatever they're doing, they're, they're not the cartoons that people imagine. Yeah. Um, they're and, not, the, they're not and, the headless people that we see on TV. Yeah. yeah. And, and then I also see all these other people who have, you know, been at every other point on the weight spectrum who are the casualties of this idea that they're supposed to dedicate their lives to being thinner, you know, and yeah. the pursuit of thinness. And so to me, this is just an utter waste of time and money and resources. And, you know, when people are getting better in my office after 30 years of having an eating disorder, you know, we're both grieving over the amount of time that they can never get back, you know, because this was the stupidest thing. (laughs) Like, Like it wasn't, it wasn't stupid for them because they survived, you know, because it was part of their survival. But it's really, really stupid that anyone would have to lose decades of their life for that project, which continues to be the assignment, you know, for, for a lot of people, they imagine that, you know, this is what they should be, whatever they should do, whatever it takes, you know, in order to, to, you know, comply and make their bodies conform. Yeah. It needs to be a lifelong project that needs to be constantly Mm -hmm. attempted, like, is it the rock of Sisyphus that you are rolling up the hill and then it continues <laughs> to roll back down on you and then you roll it back up? And yeah. 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 Like, I mean, so many other things need to be done urgently. You know, like we, have, yeah. we have a clock that's running out and, um, you know, like this, this just isn't tolerable to me, you know, that this stuff continues and I want, I want the people who are making a living at it to still be able to make a living doing something else, but I want everybody to divest from mm. this industry because the industry is a death industry and it's, mm. we can't afford it. We can't afford it. Yeah. We, we need all hands on deck. <laughs> we need all hands on deck to dismantle white centric business models. Yes. <laughs> and white supremacy and, you know, everything else that's sort of, keeping us stuck, you Mm. know, in these structural positions where we can't make progress, the progress that we're going to have to make if we're going to, you know, figure this out. We have about 50 years, you know, and time's ticking. Time's ticking. Yeah. So I guess that's what makes you so driven to critique and speak up and, and do stuff against this, which is so needed and so awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know. I don't think I felt as urgent about it when I started, but it's only gotten more clear to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the beginning, I think it was just, you know, I felt like it was, I think it came out of my own living through, you know, parts of the civil rights movement and the women's movement and queer rights movement, you know, like just Mm -hmm. this, feeling like there's stuff we can change about this and it's the same kind of process if you're a member of a stigmatized group and you've internalized all of this you know bad press about yourself Mm. (laughs) you know yeah uh, you know and yet if you have access to other people who are also members of that group and you kind of love and respect them and you kind of have this moment these moments where you're waking up and saying hey wait a minute you know like this thing I think about myself, I don't think that about this person and, you know, Mm. how, and what about that? And why, where is the problem here? Is it about me and my body or is it really something else, you know, and getting together to fight those battles really does change the world. Yeah, it really does. And I love that when people wake up and start recognizing that maybe nothing's been wrong the whole time with, Mm -hmm. with ourselves, but maybe something's particularly wrong with the structures and the messages and the culture that's right. impacting. And that, like you said, like when you're able to connect with a community of people who think like that, that's when it becomes pretty powerful and amazing and possible to make change. Yes. And I think, I think it's absolutely necessary. Like every time 
there's somebody who's sort of shifting paradigms, you know, around the, the weight stigma stuff, whether that's a person who's, you know, saying I'm, it's about, it's personal and I'm not going to do this anymore and I'm going to, you know, go ahead and get on with my life or whether it's a healthcare provider who says I'm not going to prescribe weight loss for people because it's like, you know, really contraindicated by all scientific evidence that I can see, you know, or, or whatever, you know, every single time when that person, the light bulb goes off on for that person, all of a sudden they're standing, you know, counter to this tsunami of, you know, <laughs> cultural forces that are bearing down on them, you know, all of a sudden they're not part of the current anymore and they're trying to, you know, just stand in the, in the current. And I think that's why you can't, you know, it's, it's like you have to find the other people who are really trying to do the work so that you can keep your bearings and, mm. and not just struggle against that as a single person to the point where you're exhausted, you know, you don't want to, mm-hmm. you don't want to flail, you know, like we're, we're all here, we're here, we're here, you know, we're here, we need to find each other and we need to, you know, provide that stabilization for each other and kind of say, yeah, you know, let's just even shifting um, metaphors one more time. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like, I feel like, you know, that whole fable of watching the emperor in the parade with no clothes. No clothes. And that, yes. Right. So that you're sitting there and you're just sort of looking around, you know, and you're looking around for the other people who are looking around, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. like trying to catch each other's eyes and kind of go, um, <laughs> like, um, you know, like, you know, and subtly catch each other's eyes and try to find each other and kind of, kind of go, okay, I'm not crazy. This is really I'm something so yeah, that is the best analogy for what Hayes is all about. <laughs> like, this dude's naked and no one's saying anything. <laughs> exactly. So you have a big community of people that you work with and talk with and communicate with that yes. help you feel like you're not alone in the tsunami. Yes, absolutely. And And that's a blessing. It's such a blessing, you know, that in this particular area of the world, we kind of found each other locally even Um, before we had so much reach digitally, you know, Mm -hmm. we found each other regionally and then we did find each other online. And I think that's why things have kind of galloped forward. Because Yeah. Yeah. Mm Yeah, because in some of the groups, and that's why, that's how we got started on today's topic, because in one of the groups, this study came up, which is about weight cycling in rats and how... Yeah, um, mice. Yeah, that's right, in mice, and like they're presenting it as, as if um, it's a good thing, because weight cycling actually meant that the mice lived longer, and so the article was trying to say, so that must work in humans too, and what an irritating headline right <laughs> um, okay now now we know that dieting doesn't work but now we're going to try and show that weight cycling does work and everyone should try and do it because that's going to lead to long and healthy lives yeah I think it's a parallel way of thinking to I mean I'm sure people are familiar with this idea that uh, where there's some equivalency that that is argued about you know if you you know being fat is like smoking you know, or being fat is almost as bad as smoking for your health and yeah. all these ideas that, that somehow you could take a body size and make it equivalent to, you know, this, you know, this sort of exposure to a toxin, you know, mm, mm. and, and so wow. yeah. this is sort of a persistent idea for the people who are in the dominant industry, I think, and the people in healthcare who are trying to make sure that, you know, they, they keep being able to pathologize a body size in order to keep their industry going. Mm-hmm. And, and so they basically make arguments like, you know, people who try to, to stop smoking, they're not going to stop on the first try either. And maybe they'll never stop. But the time that they're not smoking, it's still important that they have that time. Maybe their lungs will recover a little bit, maybe, you know, mm-hmm. so on and so on. And then and sort of having this parallel that, I think this was sort of like the, I, I don't know if this, I mean, that's yeah. how I read the study is sort of like, let's see what happens with the mice who are kept fat 
throughout their life and the mice who are, you know, weight cycled down and up, down and up, down and up and see what happens. Mm. And maybe, and I've heard doctors say this too, like maybe it's still better to have uh, people try to lose weight Mm. because the time that they're less fat is going to help them anyway, even if they, even if they regain weight. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a, that's a good thing to find out, right? I mean, like we need, we absolutely need to understand the whole phenomenon of weight cycling in humans. I think it's woefully neglected. I mean, it really is, isn't it? It's not looked at. Mm. And it's been actively resisted. I mean, like people like Paul Ernstberger who wanted to study weight cycling since the 80s, you know, have been turned away, turned away, turned away, turned away. And I think it's because they just didn't want to face that, you know, mm. this sort of whole prescription is, is you know, mm. so intensely problematic. But, you know, really that science has to kind of ensure there's really not a, there's not even a good, a good standard for how you report, a, you know, even the simple weight loss studies that mm. we've, we've had all these 60 years. Like there's, you know, there's no real good conventions about, you know, how are we going to talk about what happens in this whole group of people and what their trajectories of their weights are. And, you know, you get these really, you just get you know, glimpses. Yeah. Yes. You get these really murky things like, well, on the average this and on five and, and, you know, um, this percentage of people kept off at least 5% of their weight, you know, which you yeah. kind of think, you know, in 200 pound people, yeah. right, like, like that's, that's something you can probably produce, you know, once mm. you know when you're going to get weighed, you could probably produce that within a week. Yeah. You know, like yeah. Like, on, you know, weight loss on demand, you know? So, you know, the fact that, they've had to kind of back off and back off and back off about, you know, what is the goal of a weight loss mm. you know, intervention? You know, it started off, well, you don't want to be fat anymore, you know? <laughs> and then it's sort of like, oh, I guess you can't do that. And then they get, oh, how about, how about 20%? Let's just try for 20%, you know? And then like, oh, I guess we can't do that. Yeah. How about 10%? Let's do 10%. Nope, nope, still no. You know, and they're to like, well, let's do five to seven. And now it's not even seven. You know, now it's like, you get to this ridiculous place where you really are talking about, you know. Tiny difference. Yes, if you know you're going to be weighed. And, you know, like if you look at the look ahead study, which is supposed to be this, it's still being used as a justification for, you know, yes, people can keep weight off, you know. Yeah, we know that from that one study that got discontinued, but that's okay. Yeah, you know, and and basically they were comparing people who, in a time of their lives where they tend to kind of have peaked in their weight and now they're going to start losing weight because they're old enough that they're going to start losing muscle mass or kind of, you know, it's just, it's so the, the control group is losing a little bit of weight too, right? So that's that's your tip off, right? And then you look at the then you look at the people who were like intensely intervened, you know, and, and they, were, they were like, come on, everybody, every year we're gonna you know get back up to this, you know, weigh in, we're gonna have this weigh in, and then you know, like for six months before they're all kind of wrangled again, you know, and yeah, and yeah. you know every you know, you can it's just. It's a study of mild weight cycling, you know? Yeah, yeah, and it's a study of, like, pressure. Yeah. Putting, putting people under pressure. You're in this big, important study, and you have to kind of show us the results. Yeah, I mean, when you actually – there are here and there accounts. I, so every once in a while, there's somebody who says, I'm I'm actually part of the, the control registry, so I'll tell you what it's like, you know, <laughs> to be part of that, or I'll tell you the behind-the-scenes mm-hmm. uh experience of filling out all those questionnaires for Joanne Manson's group at Harvard, you know, like in the nurses study, like I was one of those people and I'll tell you how much bullshit it is, you know, and, (laughs) you know, and I know, you know, these are the people who are talking to me, of course, you know, but Mm. it's helpful, you know, to kind of, to kind of really look at, you know, these sort of things that are presented in this very kind of, you know, it's like the edifice of the data, you know, and, and, and when you, when you kind of hear, okay, here's what it was like to get this survey and here's what I did with it. And here's, you know, nobody ever contacted me and I was just reporting on this and I just threw in some numbers and, you know, I didn't want to disappoint them or whatever they say, you know? And yeah, I didn't, I didn't even weigh myself. I just guessed because I didn't want to. Yeah. Yeah. 
just how wobbly all of this can get, you know. And of course, you know, people in that group of, you know, researchers are constantly throwing out a lot of the data, which is, you know, they're just, they're saying, we're not going to look at this, this group of people and that group of people. And they get it down to, you know, people who never smoked, you know, and, you know, it's like 10% of the population, 20% of the people that they've, you know, and how many people actually have more than one survey and, you know, like you have to go really mm-hmm. into the, the weeds to really paint a picture for yourself of what, what is, actually happened. What did, yeah, what did they really mm-hmm. do here, you know, which is one of my favorite things to do. And it's one of your gifts. Like it's, you are so good at digging into the weeds and pulling out the little clumps and and asking questions. <laughs> um, so in this, in this rat, well, it's, I keep calling them rats. They're mice, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're mice. Yeah. They're a particular strain of mice. And I had, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a researcher using animals. And I tried to ask a couple people that I knew, you know, Paul Weinsberger was one of them. And Mary Baggiano is another person who's actually working with humans these days, but she had some really interesting models of binge eating disorder, for example, with rats, you know, mm-hmm. and just really interesting things like, you know, came out of her early work and, you know, and just, so, so, every, so I try to go and talk to people who know more about this because I don't know, you know, I'm not an expert in that aspect yeah. of what they're talking about. And I try to ask the, authors as well you know when I can get them to reply <laughs> well, good, on you. good on you for doing that for being the squeaky wheel because this I mean this article concludes the conclusions state weight cycling significantly increased lifespan relative mm-hmm. to remaining with quote-unquote obesity and had a similar benefit to sustained modest weight loss so mm-hmm. And in the, you know, discussion, they're saying, so, you know, it works in mice, let's tell people to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. So there's, you know, there's a couple things that, you know, the discussions that we've been having since that study, you know, have sort of, you know, centered around. And one of them that Paul knows so much more about is the unique properties of species like rats and mice who are they're you know they're they're food for predators basically and so they, <laughs> yeah right they they create they're a food supply for predators and so what happens with their populations and what happens with their physiology is that when when there's a lot to eat they don't have to turn on their genes to prolong their lives longer because they're just going to quickly make it to the point where they can start having babies Mm, mm. And, they can, and they can die off because, you know, there's plenty of food, right? When there's not food, the these genes that they have as a species, have evolved as a species, are going to turn on to delay their reproductive maturity and prolong and basically hold that capacity longer so yeah. that they can wait for a time when there is going to be enough food to repopulate their population, right? So this is really interesting to me. This is just not, it's not, it's not typical of humans, right? It's not something that humans and human bodies have evolved to do. You know, we're apex predators. (laughs) (laughs) We are so not getting eaten by much at all. Right. And so, you know, the mice really aren't, the mice are trying to reproduce at a rate that's fast enough to continue to persist even when they're a food supply for other animals. Mm, mm. Um, and so this is why, this is Paul's teaching uh, to, to those of us who have been discuss, discussing this, is that that's why you see this longevity f- effect with caloric restriction in these particular species. And you're not really seeing it in humans, right? It doesn't seem seem to work in humans. And so that's just sort of a a general kind of caution about can we really use mice models and and mouse physiology as a good stand-in for humans in this particular 
question that we're trying to ask, you know? Yeah. The The other thing I think that's really been clear is that, you know, in his experience with this is also really helpful. The, the actual diet that these particular mice were, were fed in order to produce a higher weight in enough of them is essentially like eating cake icing. <laughs> this is, he said it's like really, really uh, similar to cake icing. And so, Absolutely. But they, in the paper, it says like they're fed like a pretty high fat diet, like a, like a fast food diet, but actually it's more like, like actually cake frosting for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and this is really important too, because it's not like human, human beings who are at higher weights are not all at higher weights because they're eating fast food, you know, mm. or for sure not cake, cake yeah. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> you know, so there's all these different reasons that people are at the level that they are, right, like they, mm-hmm. you know, it's a multi-determined thing in humans, so you've got this one way that they're sort of trying to reproduce mm. humans, higher weight humans, right, or mm. stand in for higher weight humans is really not representative of higher weight humans in the first place. And, no. and the way that they're doing it is it is almost like not representative of any diet of human beings. <laughs> it's so weird. Like when you think of it like that, it's the weirdest thing ever. And then yeah. even even in that population, apparently a third of the mice that they were mainlining the cake frosting to, they yeah. still didn't put weight on. So they had to throw them out of the experiment because they they refused to get bigger. Yeah. And within the two-thirds that they kept, there were some really big number. It's really hard for me to, this is one of the questions that I asked for the authors, and they said it's going to be in a forthcoming paper. Mm-hmm. They, an awful lot of them got ulcerative dermatitis and died or were euthanized. Okay, so this is a problem. Right away, you've got a problem. Like you've got some 200-plus animals out of 500 that Die. are that are having this other thing happen and they're going to be euthanized and you're talking about using their their lifespan to make this argument, you know? So weird. And, you know, it was more likely that the, the animals that were continuously fed cake frosting, essentially, you know, <laughs> have these problems, right? So mm. now you've got a completely confounding, mm. you know, kind of situation here. I don't even see how they got this paper through in a way. Like, if that is really what happened and it's kind of alluded to, but it's not really clear. And they yeah. and he still, and he still didn't answer me when I wrote, wrote to him wow. you know, what exactly is happening here. I guess they're planning on making some sort of a, you know, statement about it, which will, I hope enlighten us as to what happened. But the weight cycling animals were basically given a break from the cake frosting. <laughs> and, you know, and, and presumably, you know, from the, the, the sort of relentless risk of the ulcerative dermatitis as well. So, mm. you know, this is all very, very problematic. And, oh. and the other thing that I did just out of just to see is I went to the I went to the company that breeds the mice, the strain of mice, and I just oh God, I love them. that you did that. That is so <laughs> awesome. I just, I went and I looked, like, how long are these mice supposed to live anyway? Mm. And according to the company, they, all of their, the average lifespan of the, of this strain of mice was well below what all of these animals survived. So even, really, yes. So even, even though they were eating cake icing or whatever, (laughs) You know, all of those animals, no matter what they weighed, had a much higher longevity than the supposed supposed average lifespan for this genetic strain of mice. And they got, this is where they got their mice. Oh my God. That's, that's not mentioned in the paper. It's certainly not. (laughs) No. You could change it. Like cake frosting extends life. Yes. (laughs) Cake frosting is a good, you know, like getting lots of fat is, is not a bad thing for these, for these. Well, mice. if it doesn't, yeah, I mean, technically, if it doesn't kill you, you'll last longer. <laughs> well, 
Well, oddly enough, <laughs> yeah, that, there may be some something in that, right? Like, because there's this weird thing about the way that as we have more longevity, we're also getting heavier. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or the other way, or something else is, you know, for sure we could, I think most people would agree that if you, you know, that a well-fed population is going to live, like, like that the part of the gains in our longevity have to do with most, more and more people having access to nutrition. Mm. And yet having access to nutrition also means that, you know, we reach a reproductive adulthood earlier. Yes. And that's definitely happening, isn't it? Like age of puberty is earlier Mm -hmm. than it used to be. Right. So is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? It's also associated with higher weight. Well, you know, these other things are associated, these greater risks of X, Y, and Z problems are associated with higher weight. You know, I, I have really been asking people to struggle with the ambiguity about this, you know, kind of the truth of this bigger picture here, which is that there's definitely a health disparity between higher weight people and average weight people in terms of, you know, there is a higher risk of some health problems. What we just don't, you know, what most people think when they look at that is that there's something about fat cells that's driving that. And what we, and, it, and there may be, or there may be for some people, but what we really are pretty sure of is that if you're treated poorly, it's mm. going to have an impact on your health. And we have very good evidence that we are treated poorly. And so the social determinants of health and the exposure to structural oppression and weight stigma and barriers to health care and, you know, all of these things, we already know that that is bad for people's health and it robs them of years of life. And mm-hmm. just sort of not be able to see that the data are exactly showing us that, you know. Yeah, yeah. it's another Emperor's New Clothes example of like that's... Right too complicated we don't want to see things that are that nuanced yeah i mean I, it's people can't really see this as a form of oppression yeah you know? yeah because it comes back to that this is your fault mm-hmm. yeah and, and the individual you know the bootstrapping mentality everything is mm-hmm. under our control and um yeah it's it's hard to get um experiences of weight stigma and uh, structural oppression into the rat and mice studies as well. Well, you know, some people would argue that the entire body of research on on rats and mice that has to do with this, you know, kind of question, you know, is really problematic because they're social. They're social creatures like we are. And the experience of all of these subjects quote unquote is that they're all in separate cages they're all kept from each other and they are not having a typical experience when they are going through whatever the intervention is you know they're not really there's a there's always another confounding variable which is potentially important um to health they must be Lonely. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it's just a really big issue with any kind of study with that kind of creature, you know, that, that you know, if you're going to measure what they ate or measure how much cocaine-laced water they drank or <laughs> measure, you know, whatever they're going to measure, you have to know, you know, who ate what and who drank what and, you know, what was left after they ate and they stopped. And, you know, you can't be posting, you know, a thousand rats in a single cage, you know, so mm-hmm. you have this weird, weird problem. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But it's the same in human studies, like the, the, the complexities, it's too hard. And, you know, one of the things that the follow-up periods in research on humans is never long enough to yes. capture like the full weight cycle experience. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I have to tell you, you know, like the researchers as the researchers that I talk to about this problem are very sympathetic. They really want to be able to study, the, the, you know, the phenomenon much longer. And there's, again, that sort of structural barrier where the length of the grants that you can apply for are just not, they're not adequate. And 
so you may conceptualize something that you'd like to do, but you can't really even be proposing it up front, you know, because it would mm-hmm. just there's really not a format for doing those studies that's very easy to access because they're more expensive when you're following people for longer periods. But, you know, I think about cancer research, for example, I think there must have been a time in cancer research when people were testing out different kinds of chemotherapies and, you know, you know, there's kind of like this period of time when you're just looking at somebody across, you know, what happens for a year, let's say. Yeah. Chemo A, chemo B, no chemo. You know, all these are the three things that you're going to compare. You look at the end, you know, how, you know, what's going on at the end of that year. And, you know, there's probably a lot of studies where they basically said, oh, wow, you know, no sign of cancer at the end of, Mm. you know, chemo A. But then they didn't look far enough into the future to know that, and within two years, those people are all dead. (laughs) You know, like, yeah. Like, uh-oh, you know, like there's some other problem with chemo A, you know, like it got rid of the cancer, but it killed the patient, right? Yeah. And, and so when you think about how now people think, okay, whatever, we're going to measure something over five years when we're yeah. talking about cancer. And I think, okay, so we've already figured that one out. So why couldn't we just make that a, a, an expectation? Like in, in your research design, if you're going to make any kind of mm. intervention around weight suppression, Mm. You know, we certainly know that, you know, the regain period is somewhere between, you know, a year and five years for mm. almost everybody. And so, you know, capturing all of that picture is really, really essential. And why even do a study at this point? Yes, yes, agree. Yeah. If we could just scrap all of the 12-week research. Oh, and my God. What's the point? And, yeah. um, and create like the gold standard, which is a five-year outcome. We would do fewer research studies. Maybe that's okay, but we, we'd get some meaningful data and it's very needed. Right. Exactly. And the other thing that we really are concerned about, like that I'm concerned about is the harms, right? So you're not yeah. going to necessarily see the harms from the intervention around weight suppression. Um, you're not necessarily going to see them right away. Right. You might see them, you might see them much later, even later than five years. But, you know, at at, at Mm. minimum, it would be good to have, you know, at least an agreement around that. This is another one of the things I just think is so, there's just the standards for how we would do these things and what's justified and what you just don't even bother with. You know, I think that that, yeah, it would be great to have some sort of standardization of all of that, you know. Yeah, we've only been saying it for about 40 years that standardization is needed <laughs> in this area. Maybe uh, one day you want to listen. You know, Stunkard was saying it, in, you know, yeah. 60 years ago. 1959, yeah, we need to change this. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, like I'm, as you're talking, I'm reminded of the current kind of controversy around eating disorders in higher weight people and the the safety and efficacy and advisability of prescribing weight loss for binge eating disorder, for example, (laughs) and the researchers who are claiming to, I think they're actually going to be presenting research at the ICE conference in New Mm -hmm. York on how apparently weight loss dieting in adolescence does not lead to eating disorders. And um, I'm fairly, I'm, almost 100% certain that the data that they'll be talking about in that presentation will be what we've been, you know, looking at like just short term outcomes. Mm -hmm. And it's not that there's no effect, but there's the follow up just hasn't been long enough. The questions aren't being asked. Yeah. I think people really don't get that. I think this is a tragic aspect of the criteria for diagnosing binge eating disorder they completely left out the restriction part. Yeah, it's not and there. Mm. It's not there at all. It's it's really we the state of our eating disorder diagnostic categories really are tragically bound to a weight biased cartoon. Mm. You know, where you basically are going, here's the small people, the medium people, and the large people. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, and here and this and these people do this and this. You know, it's just mm. wrong. It's phenomenologically. Yeah so misleading Mm. and we don't we don't do it in any other you know dsm disorder we don't divide depression into bmi categories 
right it's, it's just not it's not different yes it's not a different disease <laughs> depending upon how much you weigh and you know and, and i think this is about the problem of not really centering the way we conceptualize these these struggles on the experience of the people who actually have the struggle we're always you know the namers the people with the power to name what's going on are the people who have no clue you know and they're just kind of they're like a bunch of white anthropologists bumbling into you know another culture and kind of going that's exotic Thin they are. Oh my God! Look how fat they are. Oh no! Look over here. They're throwing up. Oh my God! Like, like it's it's just really embarrassing to me. You know, like this field is still you know uh -huh. kind of wide-eyed. You know, there. You know, there's just this sort of precedence for the people who are doing the looking compared to the people who are actually having the experience yeah yeah you know um, earlier when you terrible. mentioned you know white white supremacy like that term like you think of white people from britain going into africa 200 years ago and kind of seeing their culture and labeling it as dysfunctional mm -hmm. that's kind of what it is isn't it I think all of this connects. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. I think, and I and I've heard, you know, many other people put it much more eloquently than I than I can. And but I think it it's absolutely it all connects. And the drive to make certain bodies have more worth than other bodies is evil, and mm -hmm. it has a long history. And medical science has a long history of being a big part of that machinery and so when we're not careful about understanding that history and learning from it you know we mm -hmm. repeat it and uh -huh. so yeah. here we have you know binge eating disorder we've got this new category and it has no reference to any kind of restriction even though almost everybody has some version of actual restriction or or thinking of um, thinking that they should be restricting. Yeah. Yes. Food insecurity, either in this very traditional sense or in a in the sense that you know you're not allowed to eat the way other people are eating because of the way your body looks, you know? Mm -hmm. And and so when you think about these researchers coming back, they're all excited because look, our our intervention, you know, these people stopped binging, you know, and here at the end of nine months, they're no longer binging and they've lost 20 pounds, you know, yeah, and they're like, yeah. they're like doo, 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 you know, and we think, I think, honey, you're just looking at another stage of this process. It's, it's so, it's, it's, com they're still completely embroiled in yeah. eating disorder. You just haven't let it, the, cr the clock run out here. You know, like, you haven't mm -hmm. really seen, you haven't even seen a full cycle. Yeah, you're you're at the bottom of the diet cycle. That's all. Right. Yeah. Yeah, like people, I think they really are so blinded by their weight weight bias that they really can't imagine that people who binge, who are fat, could also have the control to mm -hmm. not binge for mm -hmm. a for some series of months. But we, anybody who's worked with this population knows, or who's struggled with it, you know, ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm. We know that this is an incredibly compliant population. They're absolutely capable of doing that. It's not that they're not capable of doing it, and it's fucked up that people think that. Mm. And, you know, it is part of the problem that they can do that, just like it's part of the problem for people with, you know, traditionally viewed anorexia. It's part of the problem. It's part mm. of the problem if you're good at this. If yeah. you're too good at restriction, you're going to run into trouble, right? Yeah. If you're too good at restriction, you're going to run into trouble one way or another. And that just sort of cloaks the whole problem of, you know, what we think of as success in a higher weight person is really part of a eating disorder process. Mm. If, you, if you just take it, if you just unplug it from people's, bodies and just look at it as a process yeah just look at the psychology of it yes and ignore you know the appearance of someone yeah. it's yeah back in the day when there were these arguments over homosexuality quote unquote mm. in you know around the night around 1970 
there was a psychologist, Evelyn Hooker, who presented all these psychodynamic psychiatrists with psych test batteries. And she said to them, if this is a disease, you ought to be able to pick out the people who are gay from, <laughs> from these test batteries, because you ought to be able to see their pathology here. So go, go, go do that. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. And she showed them that there was no difference in the, you know, batteries that were chosen based on sexuality. And mm. it was because she actually knew some gay people who weren't going and presenting themselves to psychiatrists to, and asking to be straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who didn't show the internalized stigma. Exactly. Mm. And so, you know, here's, here's another way of thinking about the very same process here you know it's like mm -hmm. if we presented you know any group of people who think they're experts on this you know here's what this person is doing you know they're they're restricting what they eat they're weighing all their food they're you know writing it all down they're weighing themselves every day they're you know doing more exercise the next day if they had an oreo this day you know like blah blah blah, blah. <laughs> You know, this is a list that you could give to, you know, people who consider themselves experts and they would and you could say, do you, this, does this person have an eating disorder? And, yeah. you know, most people go, yeah, I'd be worried about this, you know. And if you say that they're thin, it's very clear that people think they have an eating disorder. But if yeah. you say that they're fat, those are the tips that come from the weight control registry people. This is how we keep mm. our weight off. Here are our tips. And then yeah. it gets broadcast into the, into the world as, you know, here's what the successful people do. And you want to just think, you know, just like, yeah, yeah, this is what they do. They have eating disorders. Yeah. You know? yeah. That's not, it's not cool. But, yeah, yeah. That, it, that, it's that kind of thinking. And that's, you know, that's, that's science for me. It's science is about thinking about things and seeing where we're at and trying to step out of the presuppositions and, and all of those, you know, preconceptions that we're not supposed to hold as scientists and to yeah. just like look at the data. Right. I mean, you can see how we can make the effort to do that and you can see how it's like you can make it better by making that effort, but you can never make the argument that you've done it all because you just don't know until you realize that you're biased in some way. You don't know that you're biased, you know? Mm -hmm. So science helps us become less biased, but the people who have a blind faith in the scientific method as somehow magical way to kind of get rid of any kind of bias. They don't understand the history of science. Mm, you know? mm. And it really bothers me that people think, you know, what we're doing when we're critiquing that we're somehow denying science, you know, yes. it's kind of like, no, we're asking more of science. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know? We're I'm asking for better science. We're, not, <laughs> we're yeah. not asking you to, you know, forget everything that we've learned scientifically. We're actually asking you to look at it with the kind of rigor that yeah. we're supposed to. The other day on, I think, Instagram, someone called me a, oh, look, you know, you're just one of these haze people. You're just like one of the, you're a climate change denier. Yeah it's like actually, you know, haze people are more the climate change. Alarmists. <laughs> and uh, weight-centric weight perspectives are the deniers because they're denying the actual data or the implications of the data when it comes to, say, you know, the, the failure of dieting or the consequences of weight cycling or in the, the impact of oppression and stigma. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it really does reveal the kind of, there, I think there's a lot of people who think that they're watching the science, but they haven't really been taught to critique what they're looking at very well. They're really, they're really thinking solely in terms of if this is something in a peer reviewed journal, 
it's different from the human process of acquiring knowledge in some other way, you know? And Mm. it's not subject to the heuristic biases that, you know, sort of dog us as human beings trying to perceive things, you know? And Mm. they, they want to just not have to worry about that kind of like if I'm, if I'm reading this source, like if it's this person, it's kind of more of a, it's like trusting a person that you think is, you know, trusted by other people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of say, well, if this person is trusted by other people, then I should trust what they say. Mm. But it must be good, and and I don't even have to read the article. Yes, I'll just trust have, the headline. Right, I don't have time to read it, or I don't understand the statistics, or I can't imagine how to break this down, or whatever, and that is really vexing because it's kind of like it's it's a privilege to be able to break it down you know to have the education to break it down and to have the language and to know what they were trying to do and to sort of not put them on a pedestal because you've done it yourself you know and it's like I know what goes wrong with these operational definitions (laughs) yeah I know I know how hard this is I know it's really hard to do this well and if you don't have that who has access to that experience very, 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 very few people, right? Yeah. But the thing is, there are any number of examples of very well-trusted people who have gotten it wrong. And that's why you just have to do the hard work in a society, I think, of educating people about what is what does critical thinking look like? What are the right questions to ask? I mean, never more important than right now when when so much of the world is sort of headed towards an exchange of information and and the quality of information is really questionable. Exactly. And so, you know, how do you even tell, you know, how to vet the information that you're getting? I mean, everybody's gonna have to figure out a way to do mm. like a skill set for this. Yeah, we all need these hacks for critical thinking and um, mm-hmm. so it's so important. And you're right, not everyone has access to the scientific journals or the scientific method, so it is a privilege. But to to learn about, like just to learn a questioning mm-hmm. mindset it is accessible uh, for pretty much everybody. To- well, and, you know, it's it's very, very it's a, it's a privilege in, in my, in terms of my life, it was a privilege because it came from my educational privilege. I think it's also pretty cool to notice that there's an awful lot of people who have had barriers between them and that kind of privilege who've figured out how to think critically too, you know? So I just, I want to, you know, kind of honor their wisdom too. Like there's plenty of skills that people have figured out about, how to evaluate, you know, the information that's coming to them, you know, yeah. and we should be incorporating those skills too. Yeah, we can all do it. We can absolutely all do it. And that's what this whole podcast is about. It's like think critically think, and talking to awesome people like you who <laughs> you don't just think critically, you, you ask questions and you push back and that's really important. That's what we need more of. Well, lucky for me, (laughs) it's pretty fun. (laughs) I really, I just get a perverse delight out of it, really. I just do. I mean, it's, it's, I just think people, I I think it's fun. I think we should like this, you know? I think, I like it when people are questioning me. I really like it. I love it. It's like, yes, good question. Good for you to Mm. think of that, you know? And, you know, it should be something that we welcome. It shouldn't be something that we're threatened by. It's something very, very important. Yeah, so good. So open-minded. I could chat to you for the rest of the day. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Thank you so much for coming on. And Oh, you're so welcome. It's just a, such a delight to talk to you. I'm so glad you're interested in all of this. Yes. Oh, um, I'm so glad you exist. I will continue to listen to everything that you come back with because you, <laughs> you help me question stuff. And, you know, I think earlier what we're talking about, the community is so important. Yeah. yeah. We all keep each other going, so... Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for doing this work. I really, really appreciate it. (laughs) Take care. All right.
Isn't she amazing? Isn't she just like one of the best humans on the planet? I'm so I'm so happy to have had that opportunity to share a wonderful conversation with you guys, with such a fierce, such an intelligent woman as Deb. Thank you for everything that you do, Deb. You're just a force of good on the planet. If you want to find out more about Deb and everything that she does, you can find her on Twitter, so at Body Positive PhD, and on Instagram under the same handle. And there's also a website, bodypositive.com, where you can find all kinds of stuff that she has done. It's almost impossible to list everything that she's contributed to the Health at Every Size anti-diet movement. And yeah, she's just a stunning person. So thank you again. I'm going to stop gushing because it's getting embarrassing. Thank you everyone for listening today and please get going on sending me your crappy rants because I'd love to hear everything that's pissed you off during this amazing year of 2018. So I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another stunning episode of All Fired Up. Until then, trust no one, think critically, push back against diet culture, untrap from the crap.